There was a certain man who went to his doctor complaining of various symptoms. After a thorough examination, the doctor retreated into his office and he uh, called for the patient's wife to come in and hear the report. He said to her, your husband is suffering from a rare form of anemia. I have good news and bad news. The good news is that I believe with proper treatment, your husband will have a full recovery. But the bad news is, if you don't do what I'm about to tell you that needs to happen, then I believe that your husband will die within a matter of three weeks. Knowing that he now had her full attention, he said, this is what I suggest. Every morning, I think you need to wake up and prepare a hot breakfast for your husband. At noon, he needs a good home-cooked meal. And each evening, he needs a meat and potato type of dinner. Baking frequently would be good. You know, things like uh, cakes and pies and breads. Also remember that because his immune system is compromised, the house needs to be spotless. And also, in order to build up the uh, strength and stamina of your husband, it would be good for you to be intimate with him three to four times a week. After giving all these instructions, she thanked the doctor. She exited the office room and she returned to the examination room. She opened the door and her husband was on bated breath, waiting for the report. He was trying to read the nonverbals on his wife's face just to see what the doctor had said. He said to her with a nervous, crackled voice, please tell me, what did the doctor say? Tell me everything. She grabbed her husband by the hand. She looked him in the eyes. And she said, honey, the doctor said you're going to die. <laughs> it is one thing to declare love. It's another thing to demonstrate love. It's one thing to speak love. It's another thing to show love. When you and I come to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, we see that God has demonstrated his overwhelming love for humanity. Today we continue our study of this powerful New Testament letter. I encourage you to draw your sword, turn to Romans chapter 5, and once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 5, I want to read verses 1 to 8 in your hearing. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, 
when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Once again, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. In the first several chapters of this letter, Paul has laid out the claim that there is no one righteous, no, not one. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, young or old, all of us are completely and utterly sinful. There is no one righteous, no, not one. The only way that a person can be declared righteous is by God. Declared righteousness does not come by works. It does not come by a religious ritual. It is not accomplished by you doing more good than bad, hoping that the scales will be tipped in your favor and God will somehow be obligated into allowing you into his glorious heaven. No, the only way for a person to be justified, the only way for an individual to be saved, the only way for a person to be redeemed is through faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Paul makes this painstakingly clear for he says that the only way a person goes from iniquity to innocence is by faith in the hope of the resurrection which we have seen fully personified in the person of Jesus. He says this is the same way that Abraham was saved. It's the same way that David was saved. It's the same way that any Sally or Sue is saved. It's the same way that any Jerome or George is saved. God only has one method of salvation, and it's by faith in the promise of the resurrection, which is seen at Calvary's Hill in Jesus Christ. So Paul has been adamantly talking about justification. In our passage, he begins, therefore, since we are justified by faith. Once again, let's revisit that word justified. It is a precious doctrine. To say that a person is justified is to say that that individual is declared innocent. This goes beyond just the forgiveness of sin. We recall what Warren Wearsby wrote. He said, if you take the word justified, break it into its syllables, it simply reads, just as if I'd, and then you add, never sinned. And if that's all that justified meant, then that would be great. If it simply merely meant the forgiveness of sin, you and I would hoop, holler, shout, and celebrate because our sins are forgiven. But justification means more than just our sins are forgiven. Because if it was just merely the forgiveness of sin, then you and I would be morally neutral, neither guilty nor innocent. But justification is an instantaneous, legal action of God whereby God reckons our sin as belonging to Jesus and he regards the innocent righteousness of Christ as belonging to us. It is the sweet swap of salvation. Jesus gets our sin. We get his eternal righteousness. So we are justified. Justified meaning that we are declared innocent in God's sight, not just in the immediate moment, but forever. For all time and eternity, we are declared innocent in God's sight. And how is this transferred? By faith. By faith in whom? 
by faith in Jesus and what he's done for us on the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha where Jesus bore the penalty for your sins and mine. His dead body was placed into a ground. And on the third day, he was physically, literally, bodily raised from the dead. And now he's ascended into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the Father until God the Father turns to his son and says, now go get my bride, go get the church, and Jesus will come and rescue God's people from this planet. Oh, my friend, the justification of individuals is a precious doctrine that we hold dear. It's more than just the forgiveness of sin. It's the declared innocence of you and me for all time and eternity. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there are a few fringe benefits of faith. If you've ever wondered, what's the advantage of being a Christian? I mean, really, what is the advantage of following Christ, of trusting him as Savior and Lord? In these eight verses, Paul gives four fringe benefits of faith. The first, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross and because of your faith in that accomplished work, you now have peace with God. For most people, Peace is a universal obsession. Most people want peace. There's some people seated in front of me that could tell us there's some knuckleheads that seem not to want peace, but for most people, they want peace. Most individuals want peace globally, nationally, in their communities, on their streets, in their homes, in their hearts. Most individuals want peace. We don't want to live in chaos. We don't want to live where there's conflict. Most of us want and desire peace more than anything else. What Paul says is that if you have been justified by faith, then you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. This peace is greater than marital peace. This peace is greater than societal peace. This peace is greater than political peace. And all of us can say a hearty amen. Wouldn't it be great to have political peace? I mean, this type of peace is greater than anything you and I can see in this world. This is God-sized peace where God reconciles himself to sinners so that now we can be at peace with God. This is the peace that you have at your disposal. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, one of the first fringe benefits is that you have peace with your maker. You have peace with God. And because you have peace with God, you have peace with yourself and peace with fellow man. Now, how did God do this? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. That God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Stop and consider this. Before God made peace with you, you were public enemy number one on the cosmic list. You were an enemy of God. But by God sending his son, Jesus, to die in your place and mine, we who are enemies are now allies of God. And God went even one step further. He made allies into friends of God. And then he went even one step further, that friends of God became adopted sons and daughters of God. 
Now stop and think about that. That God took his enemies and adopted them into his family. Let me ask you, would you do that? Would you take your enemies and adopt them as your sons and daughters? Let's just think historically just for a moment. If, is there any, anyone here, any takers, who would have adopted Hitler as their son? Anybody would have adopted Mussolini? Well, what about Osama bin Laden? What about Baghdadi? Has, is there anybody who would have said, yes, sign me up. I will adopt them as my own. Yet that's precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. You were enemies of God. I, an enemy of God. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, because of the heavy lifting of Calvary, because of what Jesus did, we were enemies and now we're allies. And now we're friends of God. And now we're adopted as sons and daughters of God. The Lord did this through Jesus Christ. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker. It's rather old. I'm sure you've come across it. It simply reads like this. No Jesus, no peace. And the second line, no Jesus, no peace. I know that verbally that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It sounds like I just repeated myself. But visually, it makes all the difference in the world. Because the first line says, no Jesus, N-O. If you do not know Jesus, if, you, if there is no Jesus, then there is no peace. And the second line, the no is spelled K-N-O-W. For if you know Jesus, then you will know the peace of God. That bumper sticker is precisely right. Not an advocate for you getting your theology off of bumper stickers, but that one's got it right. If there's no Jesus in your life, there's no peace in your life. But if you know Jesus personally in your life, then you know the peace of God that's available to you. The first fringe benefit of your faith in Christ is that you have peace with God. Secondly, since we have been justified by faith, we stand in his amazing grace. Revisit with me verse 2. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The word grace is a wonderful word, isn't it? It's a word that traditionally is defined and interpreted as unmerited, unconditional, undeserved favor of God. And certainly that's a fantastic understanding and definition of grace. For grace is the unmerited, unconditional, undeserved, unending favor of God that he bestows upon you. Grace is something that is cascaded upon you from the outside in. You don't muster up grace inside of you. God's grace is something that comes from the outside in. It comes, it is deposited inside of you and it flows out of you. Grace is truly an amazing gift of God. But in this passage, grace means more than just unconditional favor. Grace means a privileged position. So because of Jesus Christ, you as a believer in the Lord, you have a privileged position in front of the king. In other words, you always have a backstage pass. You always have access to the king. 
You always are able to stand in his presence. You're never out of bounds. You're never out of character. You're never uh, in a place where you shouldn't be. No, you have access to the king, and it's by God's grace. He says this grace is something in which you now stand. I love that word. I'm glad that Paul did not say that it's the grace in which you walk. Because if you walk in it, you just might walk out of it. And biblically speaking, that's unthinkable. He doesn't say it's by grace that you've stepped in. Because if you step in it, you just might be able to step out of it. And my friend, biblically speaking, that is inconceivable. It doesn't say that you have fallen into grace because if you fall into grace, then you just might fall out of grace. And my friends, that could not be further from the biblical truth. No, you stand in God's grace. It's the imagery of sticking and staying. It's the imagery of strength and security that we stand in God's presence. We stand in his grace and nothing in this world can move us or shake us. Because we stand in the grace of God. Because of Jesus, we have access to the King. And that access has been bestowed upon us by God's glorious riches of grace. And we, because of God's grace, we have an appointment with God both now and forevermore. It is not fleeting, it is forever. So if you are a Christian, if you're somebody who trusts Christ for salvation, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus himself, then you, my friend, you always have access to the king and you always are are invited to stand securely in his presence. It was Philip Yancey who said of the word grace, it is the world's best last word. This word grace caused Max Lucado to write a book that simply reads that we can never get beyond the grip of God's grace. And John Newton, he just said it's amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Friend, if you are a Christian, not only do you have peace with your maker, but secondly, you stand securely in the grace of Of God Almighty. Third, since we have been justified by faith, we have a joyful hope. Revisit with me once again the end of verse 2. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now that word phrase, glory of God, uh, Paul has used that before. We fall short of the glory of God, which meant we fall short of his perfection. And because of what Jesus has done, we have the hope of the glory of God. We have the hope of his perfection. Now that word hope in its biblical sense, it means a confident conviction of certainty. In the biblical sense, there is no doubt when it comes to hope. 
We don't use that word in the same way in our English language. When we say the word hope, there's always a smidgen of doubt. I hope to get a good grade on the test. I hope to get the promotion at work. I hope that she will marry me. I hope to retire early. I hope to have a lot of grandkids. In every one of those scenarios, there's a smidgen of doubt. It may not happen. It may not come to fruition. It may not materialize the way that I envision or want it. And so we, in our English language, we say, well, we hope it happens this way. Oh, but in the Bible, hope is a confident conviction of certainty. Our hope is in Christ and Christ alone, that that God's promises, that's what we hope in. And here Paul says that we, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of his perfection, that his perfection is accredited unto us as if we are perfect. We know we're not perfect. There's no way we ever are perfect this side of heaven, but we know that because of Jesus Christ, his perfection is credited unto us and our hope is in that. Our confidence is in that. Our conviction is in that. We are certain of that. So we rejoice in that hope. In verse 3, Paul tells us to even rejoice in suffering. It's two sides of the coin of life, right? On the one side, there's hopeful excitement and enthusiasm. On the other side of life, there's suffering and sickness and sadness. And the Apostle Paul, the author of our passage, he simply says that we are to even rejoice in suffering. Now let's just be intellectually honest right now. How do you rejoice in suffering? How do you rejoice when the doctor says the cancer's back? How do you rejoice when you are dismissed from the job and now unemployment looms large? How do you rejoice when your marriage is on the rocks And you know it and your spouse knows it. How do you rejoice when your child is sick and instead of getting better, she grows worse and eventually she dies? How do you rejoice in the death of your daughter? How do you rejoice in the midst of a pandemic that has clutched not just a nation, but a world? What does Paul mean when he says that we are to rejoice even in our sufferings? Well, if you've been here very long, you understand exactly what that means. You know that the Bible does not tell us to rejoice in that event, but we rejoice in the God of the event. So we don't rejoice in the cancer, but we rejoice in the God of the cancer. We don't rejoice in the unemployment. We rejoice in the God of the unemployment. We don't rejoice in the God of a bro- in, in, in broken marriage. We rejoice in the God of marriage. We don't rejoice in the death of a loved one. We rejoice in the God of that loved one. We don't rejoice in the midst of a, just simply a pandemic. We rejoice in the midst of the God who's over the pandemic. So we rejoice in God because God is bigger and better and God is able to handle immeasurably more than we could ever even ask, think, or imagine. So our God is able. It's, It's easy to trust God when the sun is shining. It's more difficult to trust God when the storm clouds hang over the horizon. 
It's one thing to trust God in the midst of promotion. It's another thing to trust God in the midst of persecution. It's one thing to trust God when you've got your health. It's another thing to trust God when you have sickness in your bones. It's one thing to trust God when you've got enough money. It's another thing to trust God when you're facing poverty. It is one thing to trust God when everything's going your way and you got the world by the tail. It's another thing to trust God when the world caves in on you and the body falls out and here Paul says that if you've been justified by faith in Christ then you have a joyful hope independent of circumstances and scenarios so we rejoice in the hope of God's perfection and we rejoice in the midst of suffering once again it was Warren Wearsby who says your human pain is a megaphone that God uses to grab your attention. If you're going through suffering, if you're going through disappointment, you're going through heartache, you're going through pain, God is using that, friend, as a megaphone. It was John Piper who said pain is a parable. That the pain in the physical realm teaches us something about the pain in the spiritual realm of our sin. For when we experience heartache and tragedy and physical suffering, it's just a parable that shows us the full effects of our sinful disobedience. So Piper says that pain is a parable. John R. W. Stott said it this way, pain is the only path to glory. If you think about it, that's how Jesus lived his life. He had to go through the gory in order to get to the glory. He had to walk these steps of suffering, suffering death, execution, uh, uh, death of a criminal in order to go to and through the cross and beyond the grave. Jesus knows full well that pain is the pathway to glory. Listen to the step-by-step -step navigation turn that Paul gives in verses 3, 4, and 5. It is Paul who says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us. How is pain a pathway to glory? According to John R.W. Stott, well, suffering produces perseverance. The word perseverance is endurance. My grandmother would just say stick-to-itiveness. Somebody who just stays at it. They endure. They persevere. Listen, my friend, hard times don't necessarily make hard people. Hard times are given to you to make holy people so that you will persevere to the very end. If you are justified, if you're part of the redeemed, if you trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then, my friend, you will persevere. And God's going to use the suffering to galvanize you, to shape you uh, into the man and the woman that he wants you to be. God is going to use the suffering, so rejoice in it because God uses that to produce perseverance. The end result of perseverance is character. Character is who you are when nobody's watching. It's who you are before God. And really, isn't that the only thing that matters? Who I am before God is really the only thing that matters. Because God sees me 
transparently. God sees me honestly. I cannot hide before him. And God is using the suffering of my life, your life, so that we will persevere, so we will endure. He will galvanize our character. And at the end result of him chiseling our character is hope. There's that word again. It's that confident conviction of certainty that we will prevail because of Christ. And so we have a joyful hope. And Paul says that hope does not disappoint. I've told you before that my favorite hymn of the faith, my hope is found, my, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. There's a verse of that song that says, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What's the fringe benefit of being a Christian? Well, number one, you have peace with God, your maker. Number two, you stand eternally in his grace. Number three, you, you, my friend, you have a joyful hope in all of life's circumstances. But I told you there were four fringe benefits, and the fourth one is this. Since we have been justified by faith, we receive God's amazing love. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, uh, Paul says, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Friend, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, then your salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a deposit that guarantees your inheritance that is to come. And so there is nothing that can take that salvation away from you because you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that reminds you of Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin. And here, it's the Holy Spirit that pours God's amazing love into your heart. He does it like tidal wave after tidal wave, just pouring God's amazing love into your heart. At the, at the heart of, of loving is giving. You remember John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. At the heart of loving is giving. And the Holy Spirit, as directed by God the Father, is pouring love into your heart. And God is giving you his love, his eternal life, his righteousness, and is being poured into you. Paul gets to verses 6, 7, and 8. And he simply says, now listen, at just the right time, you talk about giving, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Jesus died for the ungodly. When we were powerless, powerless to do what? Powerless to save ourselves? Powerless to pay back the sin debt? We were powerless and Jesus died for the ungodly. What does it mean for us to be ungodly? It means that we are completely and utterly sinful. We are ungodly in our sin. We're ungodly in our sinister plots and plans. We are completely and utterly sinful. We are ungodly. We are hopeless. We are helpless in and of ourselves. And Paul says at just the right time, when we were 
powerless to do anything about our salvation. When we were nothing more than ungodly brutes, just sinful at every turn, Jesus died for us. In verse 7, he says, now very rarely will someone die for a righteous man. Someone might die for a good man. Now, i got to be honest, those words are a little bit confusing because the word righteous has been sprinkled all throughout this letter. And we think of righteous as something that is good. But here in this translation, here in verse 7, this word righteous conveys the idea of a moral man who knows right from wrong. But he's a righteous man who knows right from wrong. But he has a hard, cold disposition. In other words, he's a jerk. And Paul says, very rarely will anybody die for a jerk. Very rarely will anybody take a bullet for somebody who's just really a pain in the neck. I mean, he's, he's a moral guy. He knows right from wrong, but he's so hard, so cold, so calculated. Nobody likes him, not even his mama, all right? I mean, this is the kind of guy who, who nobody likes this guy. He's a jerk. Paul says, very rarely will anybody die for a jerk. Oh, occasionally. Someone might die for a good person. What's a good person? Well, according to this word used in this verse 7 of Romans chapter 5, the good person is also a moral, moral man or woman. And this person has a winsome personality. In other words, he's a good old boy. Uh, she's a great gal. Everybody loves him. They, they know right from wrong, they're moral, they're, they're good, they're life of the party, everybody wants to befriend them, they're a winsome individual. Paul says that occasionally somebody might die for a person with a winsome personality, somebody who knows right from wrong. But then verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What Paul is saying is, listen, spiritually speaking, we... We're not good old boys and good old girls. Spiritually speaking, we're not even jerks. Spiritually speaking, we are sinners. You know who was labeled a sinner in the first century? Only the dregs of society. The prostitute, the thief, the tax collector, the murderer, the thug. And Paul says, all of us are sinners. We say, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a good old boy. No, you're not. You're not a good old boy. You're not even a jerk. You're worse than a jerk is what he's saying. He's saying, you're not a good old boy or a good old gal. You're not even a jerk. You're, you're somebody worse than, you are completely and utterly sinful. But God demonstrates his, his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever ask yourself the question, does God love me? I mean, that's the question that the husband was asking of his wife as he left the examination room that day. Honey, do you really love me? If you've ever asked the question, does God love me? I mean, you look around and you think to yourself, um, I know there's a God. There's got to be a God. I mean, look at creation. It, it demands a creator. So the first question you've got to set on your mind is that there is a God. And then the second question is, does this God love me? Does this God want to make himself known to me? And if you look around at the landscape of your life and you ask yourself sometimes, does God really love me? 
because you, you look at all the sickness and all the suffering. You think to yourself, I don't know the future. I don't know the future of my job. I don't know the future of my marriage. I don't know the future of my country. I, I, I don't know. I don't know the future of, of what's going to happen when I go to the doctor in a couple of weeks. I don't know why I always got to wrestle with finances and there's always more month than money. I don't know why there's always seems to be a problem at home, you know, with, with the spouse or the children or, or children say, I don't know why uh, God couldn't just give me normal parents. Why not God just give me normal parents, not these, not these buffoons that he's given me. God, why can't, why, why, why do you have something against me? Don't you just love me? Maybe you've asked yourself the question, does God really love me? Does God even care about me? Does God know who I am and how I am? And the answer from this passage is that God does love you. How do you know? All you got to do is look to Calvary. Because God didn't just declare his love, but he demonstrated his love. God demonstrated his love for you. And that while, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He died so that you may have life. He died so that you could be at peace with your creator. He died so that you might stand forever in his amazing grace. He died so that you could have joyful hope regardless of what happens in this life and, and even the life to come. You, you, you are one who receives Jesus because he died for you so that you may have the amazing love of God being poured into your heart. Does God love me? Yeah. All I have to do is look to the cross. If I look to the cross of Calvary, I see that the God-man, perfect in every way, stepped out of heaven and stepped to the earth. And he died on the cross, not because of his mistakes, but because of mine and yours. And he took the punishment, the condemnation that you and I deserve for all of eternity. And it was squeezed upon him in a few hour window of a Friday afternoon in the third decade of the first century. And Jesus breathed his last. He gave up his ghost. He bowed his head and he died. They took his body off the cross. And on the third day, Jesus literally got up from the grave. Friend, whenever I get down and depressed and those days come for me just like they come for you, all I have to do is look to the cross. Whenever there are moments when I, I get worried about the future, all I have to do is look to the cross. Any moments of, of family strife, any moments of relational upheaval, any moments where there are difficulties in this world, all I have to do is just look to the cross. Because if I look to the cross, I see love personified. I see that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that we, we may be with him forever as I think about that I have to simply conclude in my mind that I, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and I wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean but oh how marvelous and oh how wonderful and my song shall ever be oh how marvelous and oh how wonderful is God's amazing love for you and for me Today, if you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, if you never trusted him, today can be the day of your salvation. When you go from no faith to faith, all you have to do is just say, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. I'm messed up completely. And I trust 
Jesus, that you died on the cross for all of my mistakes. And I declare that you are the king of my life. You're the Lord. You're in charge of my life. And I trust you. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one who trusts in Jesus will be turned away. Everyone who trusts in Christ will be welcomed into God's presence. All you have to do is simply declare, I am a sinner in need of a savior. Oh, many of you, you've already trusted Jesus. But maybe this day, you just want to stop and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. And maybe you have somebody in your life who's never trusted Jesus as Savior. I want you to know the altar's open for you to come and kneel and pray. Cast all your cares upon him. Maybe you're here today and you need to join this church. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do, do so in this moment. Because since you have been justified by faith, you have peace with your maker. You stand forever in his grace. And you have a joyful hope in all circumstances. And God's amazing love is poured into your heart. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We pray uh, that you will speak. We will respond. Lord, we love you a lot and we need you even more. So help us to respond in obedience to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.